0: I'm Omaya Jones, and this is the Arkansas Times Week in Review for Friday, November 10th. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're covering the decision of the Little Rock School Board to combine Hall and the West School of Innovation, as well as getting some insight into how Arkansas Times reporter Matt Campbell uncovered Lecterngate. But first, I'm joined by Arkansas Times Managing Editor Benji Hardy to talk about a lawsuit alleging decades of sexual abuse at a former youth facility against Ted Sewell. On Monday, a federal lawsuit was filed on behalf of eight anonymous plaintiffs who claimed they were sexually abused by a counselor at the residential facility for minors in northeast Arkansas called the Lord's Ranch. That facility was owned by Ted Sewell, an Arkansas businessman who was convicted of bribery in 2016 and then released from prison several years early by Donald Trump. I talked to Arkansas Times managing editor Benji Hardy. The conversation started with the question, who is Ted Sewell?
1: So Ted Sewell is an Arkansas businessman who made his his name in behavioral health. He is best known for running a facility that was called the Lord's Ranch in a small community called Warm Springs, Arkansas, that's right near the Missouri state line, about half an hour north of Pocahontas, in the northeast corner of the state, so a pretty remote remote section of the state. The Lord's Ranch was founded in the early 70s or mid-70s by his parents, uh, Bud Sewell and Shirley Sewell, But Ted became the director at some point in the the 90s, I believe. And from this one facility, which was a residential facility for troubled teens and youth, he grew a sort of empire of other behavioral health outpatient facilities operating under the name of a company called Maxis. There were, I believe, 18 facilities across East Arkansas, primarily serving thousands of clients at its peak. And Together the Lords Ranch and Ted Sewell's other companies were receiving hundreds of millions of dollars in Medicaid funds over the course of, of, of the past few decades. Uh, it it came crashing down in 2014 when Ted Sewell was became the target of an investigation, a federal investigation into bribery allegations. The Federal prosecutors said that he had bribed a state official with the Department of Human Services who was responsible in part for overseeing facilities such as his. The case went to trial, and in 2016, Sewell was convicted on four counts related to the to the bribery charges and sentenced to seven years in federal prison. Then in 2019, so about halfway through his sentence, he was set free. Uh, he was not pardoned, but his sentence was commuted by then-President Donald Trump, uh, there's no obvious connection between Trump and Sewell other than the fact that Sewell is friends with former governor Mike Huckabee. That friendship is dated back to the 90s, early 2000s. In fact, Huckabee appointed Sewell at the time to a review board, a state review board that was responsible for overseeing facilities such as the Lord's Ranch. So from the very, you know, from 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 years and years back, there's been allegations of of sort of a fox watching the hen house scenario of uh, of Sewell being having a hand in in the state regulatory agencies and bodies that are responsible for overseeing uh, behavioral health facilities. So uh, that that was the situation. I mean, I don't think it, we'd heard much of anything from Ted Sewell since 2019 until this lawsuit was filed uh, earlier this week. Um, Now, there have been allegations sort of swirling for many, many years, dating to well before his indictment on bribery charges, that the Lord's Ranch was not a very nice place for many of the the teens and youths who who were there. Uh, I I actually personally had not heard of sexual abuse allegations in the past, not to say that they weren't out there, but I did hear a lot about allegations of physical abuse, of really harsh uh, physical punishments, of children's bones being broken, of uh, counselors kind of having carte blanche to to beat children and sort of and confine them in isolation and, and and treat them very badly. And in fact, I should say I've spoken in the past to some former residents who were there in the '90s and and uh, who say that they had a terrible experience. Um, so the lawsuit that was filed is was was it, it came to the attention of the attorneys who filed the lawsuit in part because of former residents who created a Facebook group and a podcast to discuss their experiences and discuss like the, the traumatic things that they, they feel that they went through there. Um, It apparently made enough of an impression on, on people that were there that they, you know, years later as adults, they still felt the need to kind of come together and talk about these things. And then I've been told by the attorneys who filed the suit that that's how they first got in contact with, with these clients.
0: Okay. And what are the specific allegations in the lawsuit?
1: So th- the lawsuit is brought on behalf of of eight anonymous plaintiffs, uh all all men who were minor residents there at the Lord's Ranch when they were boys. Uh I'm a little unclear on, on on why they were sent there. I think the the answers will probably vary. Some of them may have been sent there by their parents, some of them may have been sent by the state. Uh, it should be said that the Lord's Ranch housed youths from all over the country. Um, surprisingly, Alaska was sending a lot of kids there. The state of Illinois and Indiana were sending kids there. There were a lot of residents from the Chicago area. And the idea is, like, I mean, it, it was on paper a, a great place, I suppose, for uh, t- to send um, a teenager who was having some sort of problems – was billed as being this bucolic setting, this farm with rolling green hills and horses and sports activities and fishing. And, you know, so it, it was sort of a, like a summer camp like setting is how it was, how it was portrayed. And states around the country, these states that, that sent kids there, sent them there for rehabilitation purposes. You know, they were, they were kids are being sent there for therapy. Um, to not, not for punishment. I mean, they were they were being sent there to to get better from whatever behavioral health issues had uh, you know had had them sent there in the first place. So uh, the plaintiffs, the anonymous plaintiffs, they're all eight, eight John Does in in the lawsuit say that they were serially sexually abused by a a, a counselor there by the name of Emmett Presley who was the sort of lead counselor he was the i believe his title was the director of social services at the time for many years so he was he was uh, close to the you know the top level administration at the ranch and these boys were not there at the same time it should be said they they were there over a period from the early 90s to the early 2000s and they have similar stories according to the lawsuit of being coerced into sexual acts and to if, when they attempted to report the abuse, whether to uh, authorities inside the ranch or outside the ranch, they were faced with intimidation. Um, some of them say that they were they had bones broken, were were badly beaten when they attempted to tell people at the Lord's Ranch what was going on. So the attorneys allege that this was all done with the express knowledge. All this abuse was 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 it was very well known and was sort of an open secret at the ranch and no one did anything about it for many years.
0: Have the defendant said anything in response?
1: So Mr. Presley, who this complaint is primarily against. I mean he's one of several defendants named, but but the specific allegations of the complaint are largely about him. He has not said anything. I, I, I don't believe he's anybody's been able to contact him so far in the way of press. He is in his nineties now. Uh, he is still alive, but he is not In the public eye, Uh, Ted Sewell has, the Sewell family, I should say, has issued a statement later this week through an attorney saying that they categorically deny every allegation in the lawsuit and that they are confident they will be vindicated in court.
0: And then finally, what's going to happen next with this lawsuit? Do we know that?
1: Well, uh, we do know that there are likely more lawsuits coming, according to the attorneys. They say that this is just the first of... Of several, um, perhaps many. They claim to have 30 to 35 plaintiffs lined up. They're seeking more ahead of a January deadline. So sort of crucial to this whole case is a state law that was passed in 2021 that creates a look-back window for cases to be brought by minors who have, or well, once minors, now adults, who, who have Similar claims uh, about sexual abuse or possibly other types of abuse. Um, this type of law, I mean, several states have passed right. laws like, Cal- this. like
0: California, I think, has passed it, and maybe like New York.
1: Perhaps, I mean, you know, it's it, because there's been such a huge upswell of, of of cases against everything, you know, institutions from Catholic diocese to the Boy Scouts to. Uh, schools various kinds i mean about looking the other way with abuse and so on um yeah a lot of states have sort of recognized the need that to create a law that allows adult victims to get around these statutes of limitations that would otherwise limit their ability to bring claims so in arkansas this law was passed in 2021 that creates this window but it is a window so um Moving forward, it will be easier for new victims of abuse to bring claims after like, well, you know, years after the fact, but sort of looking back into abuse claims that have happened allegedly in the past, then there is this window from January began in January 2022 that runs to January 2024 for claims to be brought. So the attorneys are seeking new plaintiffs and sort of hoping to file additional complaints before this January deadline.
0: Well, thank you for talking to us about this. It was a, It's a tough subject, um, but yes, thank you. It's been known for a while that the Little Rock School District will have to make some tough and painful decisions about cutting costs and likely closing schools. Managing Editor Benjamin Hardy sat down with Editor-in-Chief Austin Bailey, who's been following these developments.
1: We've known for a while that the district is going to be making some pretty significant changes due to uh, falling student enrollment, budget problems on the horizon, And as of last night, those changes, at least the first of them, became a lot more concrete when the school board took a pretty significant vote. So, uh, Austin, exactly what happened last night and and what does it mean for the district?
2: Yeah, Jim Ross had a good report for us today about a a shift that... um, some West Little Rock families have already said they, they're not in favor of, but what's happening is the West Little Rock School of Innovation, which is a, a tiny, sweet, little magnet program, uh, will be moving to the Hall High Campus, which is also a tiny, sweet, little magnet program. They're both very small, two 300 students, so combining them makes some sense um, budget-wise and also gets the students out of the West Campus um, that's under construction. Keeping them there would have added a few million to the construction price tag and also probably added a few months or more to the construction timeline. So Because
1: that that, that campus where the West School of Innovation is is also the site where a much larger West Little Rock High School is, is being built for maybe two, three years out in the future, right?
2: Correct. In 2021, Little Rock voters approved a millage extension that uh, is funding this $85 million new campus for West Little Rock.
1: Got it. So... So that so the proposal on the, on the table, like it's it's no no longer a proposal. This is going to happen because the board voted six to two in favor of it. Is to move the West Little Rock School of Innovation into the Hall High Campus.
2: Right, and it, it was it was a little bit contentious uh, when it when it first came up because some some parents at at the West School were nervous about moving to Hall High. They had an um, an understanding that it was a dangerous campus. They seemed to not want to send their kids into Midtown Little Rock. Um, School board member Allie Nolan really pushed back on that. And ultimately, the district decided that it made enough sense that they were going to move ahead with this plan.
1: Got it. And just to be clear, too, like, why would this save money for the district to be combining them into one building?
2: Well, it's going to save a few million on construction costs. uh, I guess having to build around students and teachers, uh, create some safety issues and logistics issues, so this this saves them from having to worry about that also administration costs I imagine will be streamlined um,
1: just having two small schools and separate campuses costs more than having one larger school, especially when Hall mm-hmm. High is, is so under capacity
2: absolutely, which actually gets me to today uh Little Rock school school district is in the midst of a of a big planning session uh because this is not the only big change coming our way. Uh enrollment is dropping, uh construction costs are soaring. In fact, uh the costs uh for some of the new construction projects in the district have doubled, um, look to double. And so with the Little Rock School District is 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 out of money. um, and here we have learns going into effect this year, uh, making vouchers available for, for any family who wants one. So we're expecting, you know, that we'll that we'll lose some lot of students to, to private schools. So Little Rock School District is just trying to position itself to kind of withstand all these new challenges, and um, has been having a series of community meetings to get ideas on on how to stay afloat. Really,
1: right? And I mean. You know, I know from covering the district some in years past um, that, I mean, this has been a, a theme for a long time, that the, the district has been closing schools. They, they've, they've been forced, basically, to, to, to make do with with, with fewer campuses um, because you have schools operating under capacity and they just can't. That's just too much money for mm-hmm. the district to bear. Um, are, are there other proposals on the horizon about mm-hmm. what's going to happen mm-hmm. with other campuses?
2: Yes. So... Uh, The meeting today at Hall, it was just it was a a particularly good spot for it because even with moving west to Hall, the school is still vastly under capacity. It will still be at maybe 50 percent capacity. Mm. And Hall is is a good location to kind of showcase what's happened to the district over the decades as attendance zones have shifted to kind of appease more well-to-do families who say, well, if you know, if we're going to remain in the district, we want X, Y, Z. So Hall uh, Hall's zoning district uh, in the 90s changed significantly as parents decided that Central High was was more attractive, and since then Hall has really languished. And right. so now we have we have more high schools than than we have students to fill them, and we have a brand new high school still being built. So uh, the district is going to have to figure out where to consolidate, where to cut. Um, I know there, there are some elementary schools that um, will be under capacity, and just the, the, the brutal reality is just that we have too many facilities, too many schools uh, that we can afford.
1: Got it. Though we have plenty of, plenty of children you know, uh, in the city. It's just that they are, uh, the, the public school district is, is as charters have grown and as now with, with universal vouchers on the horizon, um, they're not going to to public schools. Thank you, Austin.
0: Finally for today, Benjamin Hardy and new Arkansas Times reporter Matt Campbell sat down to talk about the origins of Lectern Gate.
1: So I'm joined here by Matt Campbell, uh, the newest addition to our staff of the Arkansas Times, investigative reporter. You know him from Twitter, most likely, and uh, you know him from Blue Hog Report. Um, we are thrilled to have him on staff. Uh, I, I should I should insert a note here that, full disclosure, Matt Campbell is suing <laughs> over uh, a lot of the matters related to the things that we're... Discussing today regarding the Freedom of Information Act and records that have been withheld by the Arkansas State Police and the governor's office, etc. So Matt is actually speaking with us now in his capacity less as a reporter for the Arkansas Times and and more as as a uh, An enterprising blogger who's been pursuing this issue on his own time for a while before joining our staff uh, in the past couple of weeks so I'd like to ask Matt just what has happened recently with the scandal that we've come to know, and as Podium Gate or Lectern Gate, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I believe most of our listeners will be familiar with with the the basics here. And I don't want to belabor it, the the story and and go over all of the the ins and outs of how this how this came to pass. Long story short, there was a nineteen thousand dollar purchase uh, mysteriously of a a lectern from an Associate of Governor Sarah Sanders uh, via an LLC based in Virginia that does not appear to be in the business of selling lecterns. Um, what's happened to this mysterious lectern in the month since? The purchase happened in June. It only came to light recently with some of the digging that Matt has done. Uh, what's happened to it in, in the month since? It's unknown. It's been seen in public basically never. Uh, all that we have. A, we the way of evidence of it even existing there are a couple of photographs, uh, sort of staged photo ops that the governor's office has, has done with, with reporters asking questions. So one way that we know that this scandal has some legs is that Republicans in the state legislature, who you, one would assume are predisposed to be sympathetic to the governor, have themselves acknowledged that there's something unusual going on here. So the Legislative Audit Committee recently what was it a couple of weeks ago, Matt? yeah, uh, mid mid-october. okay. Uh, signed off on a a formal audit. This is from legislative audit, which is a, a a legislative agency that is outside of the control of the executive branch, outside of the control of the governor. they do they are known for doing good work, deep dives into questionable purchases, quite any any thing questionable happening with a state agency. And the Re- all Republican executive committee of legislative audit agreed that the auditors need to look into this so what's happened since then i mean we haven't gotten a lot of news since that was greenlit as to as to what's going on yeah um
3: early this week uh the legislative audit you know the actual auditors came and told the legislature basically we don't think this audit is going to be done uh before the end of the year um They didn't give a lot of reason why Uh, some people chalked it up to, you know, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, just cutting it short. Mm -hmm. Others, uh, you know, assume that that meant that, you know, the investigation is, I guess, bigger than what they'd originally thought. Some people think it just means that, you know, they're trying to drag this out and sort of run out the clock, stall as long as they can, and then just sort of hope the story goes away. Um, I tend to fall... Somewhere in between those first two camps, I think mm-hmm. the holidays make it a lot easier to kick the can down the road a little bit. But I do think that, that the auditors are doing their job. Um, everything we've seen from them in past audits shows that at least at that level, they do good work. Whether the legislature does anything with what they ultimately find is a separate question. But um, I think at this point, it's just a slow process. You know, they're, they're dotting and I's and crossing T's and... I guess, trying to get to the the bottom of it, it's, it's, you know, it's confidential for a reason, and that's good, but at the same time, it's frustrating when you've got a story that's this sort of, everybody in the States sort of wrapped up in it in some way or another, like, at least interested and want to know what the outcome is. It's a lot like waiting for Christmas morning for some (laughs) of them, it seems like. Sure. Um,
1: I mean, it's not a law enforcement investigation, but it kind of almost feels like that in terms of just like, it is very much behind closed doors. You know, they're going to, when they finish it then so we kind of get the product but we don't really know until then
3: right and I mean the audit the auditors actually have the ability to make referrals to law enforcement if uh, they come across uh, something that that looks criminal to them I have no sense of whether they've ag- ever actually used that or how often I think that might have been something that happened in the Martha Schaffner investigation you know, years was, ago but sure
1: the former state treasurer who is, um
3: Famously received bribes in a pie box, was it yeah, yeah. a pie box, yeah. yeah, um, but I mean i don't think I don't think it happens too often, but knowing that they could may as an interesting wrinkle to this, but that's another thing that we would never hear about until that that process had played out quite a bit got it so can you can you explain for us a little bit
1: more about the scope of the audit itself and and what all they're looking into
3: the The main thing that Senator Hickey asked for was basically just an audit of sort of everything surrounding the purchase of the lectern. So I would assume that includes, you know, why was it Beckett Events, who is not a, you know, a furniture vendor or a furniture builder.
1: This is a company that's owned by Virginia Beckett, who's an associate of Sarah Sanders.
3: Right. I mean, that's the—she's one of the two people who was uh, part of Salem Strategies, you know, who— got paid to produce the governor's um, State of the Union response, and then all of a sudden you're turning around ordering furniture from her a few months later. Uh, so I would think, you know, why Why Beckett events? Why was it 19000 in and change? Uh, why did the state GOP suddenly say that they had always planned on reimbursing this purchase, but, you know, that didn't get brought up until after I asked about the lectern in the first place? You know, i asked about it on september 11th and all of a sudden it's september 14th when the gop sent over a check saying you know here we've reimbursed you for this so i think that comes into it uh who authorized the uh, amendments i guess you would say to some of these public records like the the to be reimbursed notations that were added after i asked about it so i think all of those questions come in um and i guess on maybe a a broader level you know who all was involved in the purchase uh the there's an email that says that sarah sanders and judd Deere both approved the vendor because they had worked with her before so you know how much did some of those people who are sort of in charge over in the office but are right below sarah how much role did they play in it as well probably comes into this got it judd Deere is what her chief of staff assistant chief of staff
1: okay got it and and then um is there not a second part of that audit, too, that's about sort of broader around the um, the changes to the
3: FOIA? Oh, yeah, along? yeah. That's right. Um, so, you know, they had that special session in September and changed the FOIA to more or less exempt anything that's sort of related to how the state police provides security for the governor or other constitutional officers. Um, it was sort of pitched at the time— as just applying to state police records. But if you look at how it's written, it's really broad, and I think you're going to see more and more state agencies uh, claiming, like, that security exemption for records related to any of the constitutional officers. But Senator Hickey's request for the audit wanted them to look into some of the expenditures that were happening at the time, like the use of the state police plane uh, and that trip to Europe, wanted them to look into that to see if there was anything... I guess shady going on that would have made them want to keep those expenses secret. You know, was was the amendment to the FOIA done in good faith or was it designed to specifically hide things? Got it. Yeah. I mean I, I remember listening to
1: the the discussion of the committee when and, and there was some pushback from some Republicans who are, you know, maybe more inclined to defend the governor, saying this is the Sort of this is a little vaguer, a little more vague, yeah. a little broader than just kind of the purchase of, of the lectern. It's it's like this is a, this is I mean that could potentially be a lot of a lot of stuff that could go into like what what kind of led to this this whole special session, this exemption being being written into law.
3: Yeah, I think a couple of the, the legislators who were there tried to narrow that a bit, uh, or at least get Senator Hickey to narrow it. I don't know that he did. I think it's still pretty broad as far as what they can look into um but you're right i mean it's it could be a lot of things i guess in theory they could look at sort of all of that spending even some of the stuff uh, that you know some other agencies might have spent related to that trip to europe Uh, you know because that was sort of the thing that kicked all this off was me asking about what it cost for everybody to go to europe and then all of a sudden they there was this scrambling and backtracking, trying to hide, come up with reasons to not give those records. So I, I think it's a fair question. I don't know. I mean, it was a pretty exorbitant price tag, it seems like, but I don't know that any of that was all that different, other than the number of people that went. Like, the spending seems normal other than being mm. overpriced. I don't Got think it. there was anything yeah. improper about it, just some odd decision-making in some of the places they went and spent on.
1: Yeah. And, and I, you know, to be fair to the governor, it's true that just like, I mean, governors take junkets all the time, right? Like, yeah, (laughs) I mean, her predecessors took trips to this, to Europe to go to the, this, this air show. And, and so that in itself is not, you know, I mean, it may not be, we, we may not love it, but it's kind of like what governors do.
3: Right. Yeah. It was, I mean, it's, it's strange that she took, so many people from the state police. Uh, She sent two of them over there ahead of time, sort of as an advanced team. Mm -hmm. And they came back, and then three went with her on the trip. And, you know, they have no jurisdiction or authority over there. They're they're Arkansas cops. So (laughs) they basically are just like liaisons to local law enforcement and, Mm -hmm. you know, telling the French cops to do whatever his cops do. And... Like sort of like, here's how the governor you know wants it done, but they don't really have a role, so I don't know that you need three of them. Hmm. It was kind of what started making me ask around about it. But, I mean, other than the fact that, like, there were some extra cops who went, and, you know, there's questions about, like, why did you all go to Euro Disney, you know, on, yeah. on the public dime? Like, those are about the, the only things I could see them wondering about in the audit. Nothing else jumped out at me as something that's going to be all that weird. You know, I, th- I think you've said before, I mean... You originally found the lectern
1: purchase just because you were looking into the, the Europe trip. I mean that that was the initial, that was the sort of motivator, right? Sort and of.
3: I mean, it was even more random than that. Uh, when I started looking into the Europe trip, and when I finally sued the state police because they wouldn't provide some of those records and were just you know making up ex- excuses that aren't like real FOIA exemptions. Um, So I sued, and then she called that special session right away uh, to try to change the FOIA, and that first FOIA bill that they proposed in the special session was so broad, it would have pretty much gutted Freedom of Information Act, like, at the state level. It wouldn't have impacted, like, county and city stuff, but good luck ever getting anything from a state official if they had passed that. So when the session started on September 11th, I was just going through a bunch of records that I already had, just looking for things that might interest people and kind of be— putting them out there on Twitter and saying like, well, if it's something that interests you, then if they pass this law, this isn't something you're going to be able to find out the answer to or find things like this in the future. Hmm. And one that I found looking through the credit cards was that $19,000 purchase to Beckett events. And I had no idea what it was. So I just put that out there because it was a big enough number on a state credit card. Like it seemed weird that they had spent that much, especially for, you know, events in June. Um, And then within like an hour or so, somebody emailed me and said, uh, we heard that this was for a podium, but nobody's seen it. And I was like, "That seems like an insane price for a piece of furniture. That can't be right." And I sent another FOIA request, try to get some records on it. And then, like everything, snowballed from there. Wow. It's It's <laughs> it's been a real strange ride ever since the the eleventh. Yeah, I, it's amazing. Like just throwing
1: out one little piece of information can you know you never know when something is going to to be the key
3: that opens the door. Yeah, I mean, of all the things that. I've looked into and written about it over the years for it to just be this random, weird furniture purchase that is the one that blew up is still kind of surreal. So obviously, I mean, this is,
1: I mean, it's become a national story. Um, and the New York Times has written about it, the Wall Street Journal has written about it, et cetera. Um, and locally, I mean, it continues to, to generate a lot of interest. Um, what, what, in your opinion, since you are the person closest to this entire episode in many ways, um, what needs to be clarified? like like what are you hearing people get wrong? Um, what what do you wish that you know there was people understood better about the whole this whole complex saga? Um,
3: I think part of it is that you know that was purchased like right before they went on this European trip and I think people are assuming that this and you know, and Virginia Beckett was on this European trip as well and I think people are assuming that this was like give her money so she can go on the trip. The more I've looked at it, I think it the timing is more coincidental. They were going to be out of out of state for like two weeks near the end of June. They knew the fiscal year ended June 30th. There wasn't going to be much time when they got back, hmm. and they wanted to use transition funds, and they were trying to get those spent before the end of the fiscal year. Transition funds are? Money, uh, it's like almost $500,000 that the legislature sets aside The year before a new governor is going to take office, uh, that that governor can then use for pretty much anything. Uh, the only, the hiccup there for them was TSS or somebody else's who monitor or manages those funds. So it wasn't possible to pay for the lectern out of those funds until it had been delivered. Uh, and that's what they were just, for whatever reason, just dying to do was like prepay for this thing. Um, Virginia Beckett went on that trip uh, paid by Glenn Youngkin, from what I can tell. So I think this was not just a quid pro quo of, like, we'll, we'll fake buy this and so you can go on this trip with us. I see. And it's a little more—I think it's—I mean, I'm sure it played into it. Like, the, the money is, you know, all going to the same place. So, like, but yeah, there was— Do you have a theory, then, of what it, what it, it was for? <laughs> no, and see, that's the weird—I think they wanted to get money— to Virginia Beckett for something else. I don't know. I can't come up with what it was for, um, because nothing seems to make sense. They'd paid her a ton, uh, both it, the campaign had, and then uh, the the campaign had even paid her, like you know, fifty three thousand or something, uh, to do that State of the Union response. So like they were sending money to her. I don't. That's the one part I can't figure out. Is like why do you do this through Virginia Beckett? Um, and then the other thing that keeps jumping out is I keep hearing people say uh, that, like, this was—the 19000 was intentional because at 20000 you know, she would have had to get some sort of, like, outside approval or authorization to make the purchase, and that's mm. just wrong. I mean, if she were a state agency, yes, but constitutional officers are exempt from those procurement rules, so— there was no amount of money that it was gonna. She was gonna have to be required to like get bids or get it from somebody else. So I think people are reading a little too much into the amount, thinking that she was trying to keep it under a threshold when it wasn't. I mean, they got the credit, the state credit card limit raised to twenty five thousand. So in theory, they could have spent that much if they wanted to. This was mm-hmm. entirely just, you know, she was gonna send eighteen thousand dollars to Virginia Beckett one way or the other. <laughs> I mean, I, I, right. I still want to know the why, but that's it's no deeper than that. Like really, when you get down to it.
1: Yeah, I see. Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, I think with anything like this, you know, people are going to be kind of reading the tea leaves, looking for significance in every little detail. But you just really don't know, you know? Um,
3: No, it makes no sense. And that's one of those things that I think makes everybody question all of this, is she won't answer any questions about it. She has her communications person out here sort of falsely telling everybody, like, oh, we've answered all the questions, you know, repeatedly. No, you haven't. And, you know, a lot of these could be instantly. when Andrew DeMillo asked, it was writing his article recently, and asked to see the lectern, and they just sent him one of the pictures that the Dimgaz had already published back in <laughs> September. You know, one of those proof-of-life photos that they, they took uh, there in like mid or late September to try to prove right. it to everybody. Uh, and I don't think that's the real lectern. I think that was entirely a rental to get some photos. Just the timing is weird. None of it makes sense. Nobody's seen it since. So I mean, do you think... Does it exist? I mean. My gut feeling is no. I think the money was for something completely different. They, for whatever reason, decided to spend this as we're going to get a lectern. They've come up with like four or five different excuses for it since. And then when somebody pokes a hole in one, they just sort of cycle back to the next one. So like first it was that they needed a shorter one because she's like not as tall as men. But then you (laughs) see her using the lectern that Ace used like for every one of those daily COVID uh, press conferences and it's not like she's too short for that one so that makes no sense <laughs> and then it was like it has special features but you know like one of the pictures the dim gas had was from the back and like no it doesn't and Like it has a microphone like it's it may be adjustable from what we can tell that's about it so I don't know I think but you had that lag between when I asked for it uh for the records on the 11th and then it was like the 25th or so when they you know invited uh the Demgaz reporter to come take some pictures of it. And I think that lag there was just trying to find like a rental or one they could borrow or mm. something to get some photos. Mm-hmm. But then nobody's seen it since. And people have just straight up asked, can we see it? And the response was like, no, you'll talk about it too much. Right. Like, yes, yeah. Yeah. So that's we, the <laughs> point. Like we want to see it and talk about it and end this story. And because we're all tired of
1: it.
0: Yeah.
3: <laughs> I'm tired of it. I'm so tired of talking about lecterns and it's just, she keeps dragging the story out. Like they've had multiple points along this timeline where they could have done X and pretty much made the story go away. And they've chosen Y every single time and just like drag this story out. It's, it's yeah. like watching somebody like read a, a choose your own adventure book and just make the absolute worst decision on every page. It's like Good job, and Now the dragon's got you. Okay. Well, I think we can leave it there.
0: That's the show for today. Thanks for listening to the Arkansas times. Week in review. We'll see you next week.